Our scripture readings this morning, first from the letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, which you will find on page 1034 if you would like to read along. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then our gospel reading is from Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, which you can find on page 895. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two or of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The word of the Lord. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Loving God, here we are once again. Having sung your praises, admitted those places where we fall short, given thanks for your grace. We've heard your word read, and we ask that you would be at work among us by the power of your Holy Spirit, to open our hearts and our minds that we might, hearing these words read, receive your living word, Jesus Christ, and in him have life. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to ask a question this morning. In this time, what is our calling? What is our central work, our existential task, to use the philosopher's phrase? Now, 
maybe I should clarify before you get too worried. I'm not asking that question in the sense of our national life or politics or anything like that. Those are interesting questions, but I will leave them to you. For our purposes this morning, I'm going to leave those questions for other settings. I really do want to hear what our texts have to say to us today as a congregation. Certainly, Paul in particular seems to raise questions that may apply to those other realms, but I want to focus on our life together. And I thought I'd share with you this morning why I find these particular tasks, or passages, texts, fascinating. In spite of the fact that we don't seem to pay a whole lot of attention to us, they aren't really very well known. I doubt that many of you have committed these verses to memory, but they speak to the church at a time when it was struggling to find its identity, and to Christians in a time when the Christian faith itself was only beginning to be a thing at all. To take them in what we think is the order in which they were written historically, Paul wrote first to the Christians in Rome to introduce himself to them in anticipation of the time when his missionary travels would take him to Rome. This is kind of an introduction of his who he was and how he understood the Christian faith. Of course, when he wrote, he had no way of knowing that when he would finally make that journey, he would do so as a prisoner of the Roman authorities, and that he would likely spend the rest of his earthly life there. But that would come later. At this point, he wants to tell the Christians in Rome, many of whom are now new to the worship of just one God, after all, rather than a pantheon of a sort of dysfunctional family of divine beings who human beings needed to, who humans needed to placate to get what they needed or wanted. What does Christianity look like? What does it mean to follow this peasant rabbi from Galilee, who turned out to be the Son of God, God's Word incarnate, made flesh, who was put to death on a cross and was raised again to life by the power of God. What does it mean to follow this one who had changed their lives, but left them in the midst of their old lives as well? How do you do that? And Matthew, Matthew writes his gospel for Christians who have just been expelled from the synagogue because that's where the earliest Christians worshipped in the beginning, a church now truly on its own for the very first time. Up until this, they had been, in a way, a subgroup, a sect 
of the Hebrew people. They lived within that structure. But their insistence on worshiping Jesus as Lord and Messiah and their willingness to accept Gentiles without requiring them to convert to Judaism and keep all the Torah laws led the Jewish authorities to decide that the church could no longer be considered part of the chosen people. So they were cast out. So the church, as Matthew writes, finds itself now on its own without the security of the institutional rules and requirements to guide it, remembering the past, but cut off from it. So, in both of these texts, both individual Christians and the infant church find themselves on their own, without much structure or tradition to guide them. And while that kind of openness and freedom can seem from a distance liberating and attractive, in the midst of it, it brings a fair amount of anxiety and conflict. Questions like, who are we? How do we live together? How do we get along? What are we about anyway? How do we live our lives? Questions like that suddenly rise to the surface. And the answers are by no means obvious in that time and place. Well, of course, that's not our situation, but there are similarities. In an interim time like this, where we are as a congregation, a time between called leaders, as you've heard about the work of the PNC, which has begun among us, in these times, there is a sort of vacuum, and basic questions rise again to the surface. Questions like, who are we as a community anyway? How do we live together, and what are we about as a people? How do we understand ourselves as a community of God's people, as the body of Christ gathered in this place? I think these are questions that our texts address in some very basic kinds of ways. It's not my job, of course, to, or any pastor's job to say this is how it must be. In the Reformed tradition, that's the work of the session of which pastors are a part, to listen and to discern the direction that the Holy Spirit is leading. But our brothers Paul and Matthew give us some basic guidelines, some founding principles, if you will, that I think we need to remember, to be reminded of in an interim time. At the beginning of chapter 18, Matthew describes the disciples as asking Jesus a question, one question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers by calling a child forward and saying that unless they change and become like a child, unless Jesus says they humble themselves in this way, they will never get into the kingdom at all. 
and the one who is most childlike is the greatest in the kingdom. Well, our human tendency is to do quite the opposite of that, to think quite the opposite. We feel more secure, less anxious when someone strong is at the helm, assuring us that they know the way and all we need to do is put our trust in them. Anytime someone announces that God has told them what needs to be done and we should just let them take over, I get a little bit nervous, I have to say. Because although it may make me feel more secure to just fall in line and follow and think that someone else has the answers, it really isn't what Matthew tells us Jesus described. In God's kingdom, of which we are an outpost, a colony, those who are most childlike, Jesus says, are seen as greatest. And the way Matthew tells it, being together, living together as the church, we are to be a place where gossip, talk about others, has no place at all. Jesus describes a community in which we don't talk about people or what they've done or what we think they might have done. We talk to people directly. Now, gossip, especially in a time of uncertainty, may be entertaining. It distracts us from things. But it's not how we are healthy together spiritually. It's not what we are to do. Jesus says, if someone sins against you, go to them. Have a direct conversation. In so doing, you may regain your brother or sister. And I think we may learn something about ourselves as well. And if that doesn't work, you still don't get to talk about them, he says. The rest of our passage describes how to care for those who have done wrong, dealing with them directly in order to restore them to healthy life as part of the community of God's people. And if that doesn't work, he says, let them be to you as Gentiles or as tax collectors. And how did Jesus relate to them? He loved them and sought them out. This is important. We don't get to ignore sin, but we don't get to use it as a source of entertainment either. That's not what it means to be God's people. In his classic book, Games People Play, Eric Byrne, the founder of Transactional Analysis years ago, described a game called Ain't It Awful. You know that game? In that game, we talk amongst ourselves about how awful someone else is in order to distract ourselves from the difficult and painful things in our own lives that we need to attend to, but probably would rather not. Not surprisingly, a time between leaders, an interim time in a congregation can be a time when we're tempted to play the game of ain't it awful. But we need to remember that according to Matthew, 
Jesus himself has said that is not the way we are to behave as the church. Fundamentally, that's probably because it's not a very loving way to live. And that's what Paul says is at the root of it all. That's what matters most. It's ironic that Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the scholar of the Torah, the Hebrew, the ultimate Hebrew legal scholar, puts the law in its simplest terms. You remember the commandments, he says. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You remember those commandments and all the others like them? They're all summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Period. End of sentence. So that's what we have to remember now in this day and time in the life of our congregation, but probably always. Jesus calls us to be a community in which we love God by loving one another and all the world. It's just as simple and just as hard, as challenging as that. We aren't called to be a business, not that there's anything wrong with that, but the world has plenty of businesses and people starting new ones every day, concerning themselves with efficiency and profitability. That's not our call. Nor are we called to be a helping agency, though that's probably closer to the mark, because love seeks to help those who need it. Rather, we are called to be a community in which we work to live in right relationship with God and with one another in the nuts and bolts, nitty-gritty of everyday life, responding to God's call in Jesus Christ, following even as a child. May God bless us in this endeavor together. In his holy name, amen.